Hello, and welcome to The Church's Radical Reform. My name is Christopher Lamb, and this is a podcast exploring the unprecedented reform process that Pope Francis has begun in the Catholic Church. Now, in the last episode, I said that next time I would be talking to a female theologian and church lawyer about the latest reforms to the Synod, Miriam Wylands, a theological advisor to the Synod process, and a professor of canon law. I wanted to talk to Miriam because of her deep understanding of how structural reform can take place in the church and to help make better sense of what has been going on. In other words, what happens when the rubber hits the road? Miriam and I sat down and spoke at the Synod office in Rome, located a few hundred metres from St Peter's Square. So Miriam Wylands, thank you very much for joining me on this podcast and you are in the middle of various meetings about the Synod and you've been involved in this process. You're an advisor to the Synod and you're also um, a member of the steering committee. What features of the Synod process have really struck you so far? Well, first of all, thank you for that question. Maybe I should just explain a little bit um, what I have been involved in so that we know what I'm talking about. I was invited about um, two years ago, I guess, um, to to become a member of the steering committee. And so we began to develop the whole process. And what is unique, first of all, is that Pope Francis then in October 21 um, opened the Senate, but a week later it went to to the dioceses. The local churches. The local churches. And this is something new. We begin where the people live their faith, experience how it sustains them, where they have, where they meet challenges. What we are seeing in this movement is already an, implic- in, an application, if you like, mm-hmm. but which had never happened before because we are all used that things come from above. Rome will speak and you have to implement it in the local church. So this went to the local church. In the local churches there were, I remember people calling me saying, what if my bishop does not want to participate? And I would say to them, it takes two to tango. So if the bishop does not invite you to dance, why don't you invite the bishop to dance? So you as a group of priests in your diocese, your presbyteral council, why don't you start this process with your people? And they did, and they sent their reports to the Episcopal conferences. So then the Episcopal conferences, and there are 114 of them in the world, 112 of them responded a summary that of all the consultations of all the hearings that had taken place in their diocese. And then there was a group of about 28 people who met for almost two weeks in a small city outside of Rome, Frascati, where they read all these documents. And a few things were really surprising. First of all, from the 114 conference, 112 responded. That had never happened before. We don't know about the two who didn't. <laughs> Well, I mean, the Secretariat knows, but they too will be able to participate at later times. And we must remember people might be in very different situations. There might be war, there might be uh, political situations that prevented them from. So let's look at what the 112 that did report was for us surprising that they basically all brought the same subjects. And they also brought the same tensions. So it wasn't like one is going in that direction and another part is going in a total different direction. They were all mentioning the same subjects. 
And they were all mentioning the same tensions that they are experiencing. So we felt that this was really a sign of the working of the Holy Spirit. And one of those things that came up time and again was the role of women in the church. And we've just heard, well, recently heard that Francis is going to uh, include women in the Synod Assembly in October as voting members with other lay people. How significant is that? And is that effectively a response to the call of many Catholics? I think, again, we can see that the, the call begins earlier. So the fact that Sister Natalie was appointed as an undersecretary of the then called Synod of Bishops, this is, was the title of the office, which is now only called the Synod, but Sister Natalie became an undersecretary. I was called as a lay woman. Um, I am Dutch, I work in Germany. I was called to be on the steering committee. Then there was a presentation of the first document and the presentation for the press was with two women, Sister Natalie and myself. This was all new. So, so many people are looking to what is going to be there in the end and they forget to see the steps that are already taken at the moment. So this, this whole synodal process is characterized, as I just said, the change from top to bottom, now from the bottom to the top, the inclusion of women as the process is going, the meeting in Frascati in which there were so many women present from around the world, from different cultures, married, uh, religious, single, uh, different ages, different continents, all of that are already steps as we are going. And these, the participation in all these steps have an influence, of course, they somehow have an influence on the outcome. The office had asked the Episcopal conferences, would you rather like to meet among yourselves as bishops or would you want to include other members of the faithful? And the bishops around the world answered, we want a meeting with other members of the faithful. So the meeting in October with the participation of other members of the faithful, it began already in the dioceses, it began already in the continents, and this is a pattern that is continued. So we now also see that suddenly the continents get a weight in this whole process because the continents, yes, we have five continents, but we have seven continental meetings because the Middle East with the Eastern churches had to be considered separately, as well as North America and South America, two different meetings. So each continent has been invited to submit a list with um, 20 names and 50% of them should be women. And the Holy Father will then make a decision um, who will be from every continent, who will be the 10 people to participate, but five of them will be women. In the past, these were clerics that was already changed to brothers, and uh, also brothers with voting rights. And now it has been officially decided that there will be five representatives of the major superiors of women and five of the men. So it reflects, as you say, this change that's going on in the Synod as a bottom-up process. It, it's, it's striking, though, that the conversations that have happened, there is this shift, as you say, to the, to the local level. Is that one of the ways that the Synod is, is reshaping the church, that it is moving things to the local level? Because in the past, people felt that certainly bishops complain sometimes about the church being too centralised in Rome. Yes, I mean, Pope Francis, um, in the first constitution that he issued, Evangelium Gaudium, already spoke about a healthy decentralization. Um, 
Now, decentralization is, is more from an organizational principle. What we see at the moment is is an implementation of the interaction between the local and the church universal. But it's not just, let's say, a, a dialogue between the Diocese of Westminster or Birmingham uh, and Rome, meaning the universal church. It is also at the moment an invitation to look right and left, who are my neighbors. So the Diocese of, of Birmingham, the Episcopal Conference of, of England and Wales, is invited to listen what's actually happening in the Czech Republic, but also what is happening in Tanzania, what's happening in um, Argentina, what's happening in um, Osteemor. So there is an exchange. And this is something that happened at Vatican II. The success of Vatican II was not because things were issued from the top to the bottom. And then it goes through a discernment by which you say, okay, is this good for everybody? Or is it maybe good for some parts of the world? But there's maybe not even a need that it is implemented everywhere. So I, give you, I can give you actually an example. Um, like I said, I, I'm from the Netherlands in Germany. Both countries, they have what we call lay pastoral ministers. In Africa, you have catechists. We don't have catechists. And the Africans um, do not have lay pastoral workers as we know them. So there is maybe no need to have the same model all over the world. And this will be one of the, the issues, I think, at the Synod on Synodality. What really do we need to organize centrally and what can be left to the local churches? That question is absolutely crucial, it seems. Yeah. Is it a synod or a synod of bishops? Originally, it was called a synod of bishops because it was born, and we have to know the history of that too, out of the experience of Vatican II. So Vatican I was focusing on the role of the Pope and recognized the special role that the Pope has in the church. But then the bishops at Vatican II realized how good it was to hear from those who were sitting beside them, because they were not just sitting the, the, the bishops of England and Wales in one row and the next row was France and then another row there was maybe uh, Brazil. They were sitting according to the moment, the day that they were ordained. So they suddenly found themselves with very different neighbors. And it meant that they heard stories about other parts of the world and they said, if we do not know this, how can the Holy Father know about it? So would it not be beneficial if there is a regular meeting in which we exchange what is happening in our churches and make that um, also available to the Holy Father so that he can exercise his ministry? That is the origin of the whole thing. Now we are much more moving into recognizing this is not just bishops, but this is local churches. So bishops who stand in mm. representation of a local church. And I think that's... Um, um, the whole project is therefore called because of the, the the faithful being incorporated in this, the other faithful, members of the people of God. So you have the bishops and the other members of the people of God. A member of God is not just the laity, it's also sure. the priest and the religious, so it's, it's everybody. This synod, we have a, a wider sense, but there will be a special session as part of this larger city um, synod, and that is, is going to be in the Synod on Bishops. So there will be um, less than 25% non-bishops participating, but we can still say it's a Synod of Bishops. Okay, but it's not the bishops isolated alone. The Synod itself does not decide anything. Never ever in the history, since 1965 when it was established, did the Synod ever decide anything. It was a consultative vote to the Pope. 
So, so we should also diminish the weight of that vote or maybe put it in perspective and say, this is not a decisive vote. Sure, sure. And that is an important point when you consider those who have tried to claim that the Synod of Bishops or the Synodal Reform is an attempt by the Pope to bring in a sort of a general synod like in the in the Church of England. A lot of people have been concerned and other places about the parliamentarization of the, the church through the synod. Well, I, I don't know if I am um, so afraid of that because I think uh, we have to see exactly what do people mean with these words? What do, what do they mean with parliamentarization? Some people say we are not a democracy and then they say we don't vote. Mm. So voting in itself is not the issue. Episcopal conferences vote. They need a two-third majority for the decisions they make on several issues. The difference between um, democracies, uh, but, but between parliaments, let's put it that way, and the church is that we are not um, trying to get my point through or my point of view, but the question is a discernment process by which we place ourselves in the presence of the Holy Spirit and do not say, what do we want, but what is God asking from us how to be, how to live, and how to be a yeah. missionary church in our time. So it's it's a process, and I think this is also what I experienced so far. All the sessions in which I have participated have always been sessions beginning, ending with prayer, um, silence in the meantime, reflecting on it, um, the word of God, what does that really mean for our session today? And, uh, but it, it's an important point you make about um, voting in democracy, somehow that the church stands above this kind of thing when actually voting is in, is how we how some decisions have to be made or it's uh, part of the... Uh, actually, it's interesting. The World Council of Churches does not vote. The Catholic Church votes. But the World Council of Churches, I'm a member of the, the Faith and Order Commission of the World Council of Churches on behalf of the Dicastery for Christian Unity. And in the World Council of Churches, they decided um, 15, 20 years ago that um, there would be no voting anymore and we would only make decisions by consensus. Uh -huh. So voting at the World Council of Churches occurs only when you have to approve statutes or when you have to okay. elect people in a position. Way it's a different way of operating because you have to come to a deep listening and respecting each other, and that you arrive at a common understanding of what you are doing. Yes, so is, I suppose there's a balance between consensus and voting. That you... and consensus is not the same as unanimity. No. So it could well be that people will say, "I have no further objection to this." Um, yeah, actually, I had that experience in the Faith and Order Commission, the last um, um, meeting that we had on a document on moral discernment in the churches, which is a really tricky issue. All the churches are faced with difficult ethical questions, all of them around the world. And um, for many churches, these ethical questions are at the moment homosexuality, the role of women in the church in abortion. And they are divisive. They bring about a lot of emotions. So the commission in Geneva looked at what can we do to help the churches in this? And that document, we wrote a document, a tool to better understand what we are actually doing in these discernment processes. But that tool had to be approved. And 
Right. Some people had a, a, a little bit of hard time at the beginning saying, okay, what is this all about? And But finally, everybody said, yes, we can, we can agree okay. with this tool. Isn't that what this synod is all about? Because it seems that it's not going to be about focused on two or three issues, divisive issues. It's going to be very much about the process or how the church becomes synodal. Is that how you see it? Yeah. I think the, the synod is not about specific ethical questions. It's not about um, women's ordination. It's not, these are not the subjects. They are subjects of concern for the people of God, some of these issues. So it's more about how do we reflect, how do we actually arrive at a position in our church? What is the right way of going about that? And how do we listen to the different role of everybody according to their vocation and maybe also i mean this is if you read all the seven continental documents then you see there is a request can you can can the church maybe discern what should be discerned at what level you mentioned ministry what about something like female deacons should could that be a local level well, I think we we have. I think that would be a bit more difficult because it's a it's a very fundamental question in our okay. church doctrine. But married deacon is something that came with Vatican II. Now, the married deacons have come about in the Western world. I was a little bit involved in the Amazon synod. Apparently, they don't have married deacons. So Amazon, you have yeah. no. So you have something. You have an institution that is there for the whole world, but it's not implemented everywhere. So it's left to everybody if they want to have it or not. So you, you could have a thing where this is the broad position. Yeah. It's up to you to yeah. implement it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, a lector could be a leader of a community in the Amazon, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and this was actually in the 1960s. Paul VI suggested that, that the Episcopal conferences would develop different ministries for different parts of the world, and that the bishops never did that. So the opening was already there. Yeah, but so that brings us on to some of the opposition. How concerned are you about opposition and the sort of passive resistance that, that, that we seem to be seeing? Well, it's, I, I do not like to think in, in opposition. I would rather think about people who might be skeptical. Mm-hmm. Those who have reservations, maybe. Um, I like an image that I use quite a bit, actually, in the mid-late 1980s. And when I arrived in Canada, they already had smoking and non-smoking restaurants or sections in restaurants and in the university. And we didn't have that in continental Europe. And the tobacco industry was saying, no, you can never change that. And the hotel industry was telling us, oh, you couldn't change it because they, they were, the restaurants, they would never have customers anymore. And the airlines were telling us that people couldn't fly from New York to, to, to London if they couldn't smoke. And they would open doors of airplanes uh, halfway over the ocean because they wouldn't be able to control their desire to smoke. And here we are, um, less than 30 years later, and we are a non-smoking world despite the strong opposition of a small group, but a very strong group and a very focal group. So the question is, what, and and the same you can see with being, you know, how do we go about the environment? You know, we we increasingly, we find it difficult to eat, to, to have plastic bottles and plastic cups, and we say, maybe we should have glasses. 
So, um, so a change is coming about, and it's a change of mentality. And it's a good thing that with all these changes, it's a gradual process, and it's not from today to tomorrow. And you give people, so first you, you try to say to people, this is a good thing to do. Uh, so you can try to convince people. And at some point, um, people will say, okay, this is indeed, I, I begin to appreciate this now. So the, the, the change can happen gradually, but in some ways, when you look back, it's, it's quite quick. Yeah. I would like to see, maybe we should go back to some of the writings. Did anybody expect in October 2021 that, what is it, 18 months later, the Pope would say that women could vote in the next synod? Quite something. It's quite something. And the speed is so high. And I think if we look to the Senate process over the past two years, it's amazing. Uh, but it's not because the Pope decided this. It comes from the bottom up. And that's how renewal, discernment has to eventually lead to decisions. And there are some people worried that, that nothing will happen in terms of reform. But the decisions are already made by now inviting um, these women to come, by inviting um, 70 non-Episcopal members. And that is something that you cannot reverse anymore. Yeah. So if this is happening in Rome, maybe some people will say, maybe we can have that in our local churches. So, so we will have to see. And I think the fact that we are also here, and I mean, we are sitting now here in Rome in an office of the Synod, um, here too, the dynamics are different. We were with a group of 28 people um, discerning what was the outcome of the consultation, so to speak, in all the continents. We were with a group of 20 people again two weeks ago discerning what was the outcome of all the continental meetings. In the past, First, we did not have these consultations. Secondly, the documents were written by one or two people. So the changes are already happening. Mm -hmm. So we should not just look at what is going to be the outcome, but can we look and see what is already happening? Yeah. So let's look to the group pictures that we already have. Reforms that, that take place in, in any field of life happen incrementally, step, step by step, and then you suddenly take stock and think, wow, that is a big, big change that's happened. Um, you are a, a canon lawyer, a church lawyer. Um, how important is it that the Synod leads to some changes in canon law? Because we have this Synod process, but canon law, the church's law, which of course is so important, um, and what bishops have to follow, etc., is still... You know, the last code was uh, produced in 80, 1983. Does there need to be catch up in, when it comes to canon law? I think many people are surprised when I say uh, the problem is not with the law. The problem is with the implementation of the law. I think the most tangible change for people would be parish and in the diocese, diocesan pastoral councils. And these are bodies which involve lay people? Which involve all the faithful. So that means the bishop has to do a discernment process. It's not just, do I feel like it or not having it? It's, it's a discernment process. If he believes in that sacrament himself, then he will ask himself, how can I know how the Holy Spirit is working in my community? So that would be one way, the diocesan pastoral council. If the bishops understand his own office as in the service of the people of God, he will do all of that. If, however, we would have a change of the law in which it says it is obligatory to have these meetings, there could be bishops who will say, I don't really care. 
and I will have it pro forma once a year and I will inform the people what I have decided. So, and we have this with presbyteral councils. It's a good example because the presbyteral council for the priest in every diocese is obligatory. But we can ask the priest how they experience the consultation by the bishop. And there will be priests who will be able to tell us, usually the bishop comes in, he gives a long lecture on all the things he did, and he, he might inform us what he has already decided. So it's not really a consultative body. So what is needed is a change of attitude. It's a change of mentality and of appreciation. And that is something that a lawyer and that law itself cannot produce. So it has to be the, the process of changing. And the bishops who have stepped into the process and walked with the people now feel that this has been an enrichment for the way they exercise their Episcopal ministry. It doesn't take anything away from them. And the same would be for the priest in the parishes. It's an absolute need for formation, yeah. from, from bishops to faithful, including priests. Um, yeah, would you say that also about, and I have to ask you, because you, you, you work in, in Germany, about the German synodal way, that there's a, there was a need for formation. Um, when you think about what has come out from that and the fact that you know, there's been a lot of opposition in Rome to that. It's very difficult to give in one line a reaction to the, because you, we wouldn't do justice to the German um, synodal way. Germany and Australia both have responded to a, a very serious crisis arising from sex abuse cases. And it wasn't just, just abuse, it was the handling of the abuse. Exactly. And both of them react with a synod. It's very or with a, a, something that is like a synod. So the Australians take a, a plenary council and the Germans say we will do a synodal way. And in both systems, they are struggling. What shall we do? How can we respond to that? And what changes are necessary in a more permanent way, in the way we operate and in the way we engage with each other? It's important to remember that context. It's very important to remember that context from where it came from and where the questions, because there were independent reports in Australia, there was a royal commission. In Germany, the government so far has not been willing to, to do an independent investigation. So the church had to ask for that investigation itself. And the out, you know, that's what came out of it has been just horrendous. Yes. And, and people are saying, can we trust? And even at the moment um, in Germany, the former president of the Episcopal Conference, who was a president after 2010, did apparently, according to the now new release reports, not report those yes. cases to the state authorities, nor to the church authorities. So then you say something has to change. If it is possible that a bishop can decide not to, not to stay to his own legal system, Yes, and that's a credibility both within the community, because the bishops, the people are saying we cannot trust our bishops because they're making decisions and they, they, we have to see if they still respect their own legal systems. But it's also a credibility problem to the outside world. So you cannot be a credible witness to Christ and proclaim to the rest of the world how to be um, a good person. Um, if you don't do that yourself. So it's it's a double task. Okay. 
but we've covered a lot of ground and I'm really grateful for your time um, and uh, you know sharing your insights it's been fascinating but just as we finish off um, how do you see things developing what's your hope for this for this process um, one of the things that I really find fascinating is how what we call the global south is coming um, on, is, is on the rise and um, also that for example the Pope has decided that there will be 70 people from every continent and not just the Western world. It's a global synod. It's a global synod by which we have the privilege we as Europeans um, will have the privilege of listening to how the Holy Spirit is working in other continents. And um, so I think we, I mean, we have some homework still to do on that, but I think that's a great thing. Certainly fascinating and quite exciting times. Thank you. The Church's Radical Reform podcast is sponsored by the Centre for Catholic Studies at the University of Durham in partnership with The Tablet. Thank you for listening.